Photojournalism is an essential part of the media's mandate to inform the public. Photojournalists work at the local level covering important daily events, but also have assignments that take them to far-flung places to document major world events. This puts them, often, in the thick of the action, searching for the frames that they hope will accurately portray what they are witnessing. But especially when it comes to covering tragedy, destruction, and death, it's a slippery slope for those behind the camera as questions of ethics, morality, and exploitation come under the scanner. These issues are explored in Iman Adem's review of journalism story Behind the Frame. And as the name suggests, it's a story which focuses on the ethics of photojournalism. When I was reading Iman's article, I was struck by two issues raised by one of the photojournalists in the piece, Andrew Jackson, a Montreal-based photographer who's also on the advisory panel of the Photo Ethics Center. First, he's quoted in Iman's piece asking, Why is it that you're able to show dead black people and dead brown people in graphic ways and images and in newspapers in the global north? But white people aren't photographed and shown in the same way in the global north. And we have to ask ourselves, why does that happen? And perhaps, in one sense, this maintains a status quo of civilized and uncivilized. I found this to be compelling as it leads me to think more critically on how I myself consume photojournalism. Hearing these concerns from Jackson reveals the depth and nuance to the profession and how impactful a photo can be on the event it's documenting itself. And then there was this one comment he made that impinges upon the conscience or mindset of the photojournalist. He tells Amon, As photojournalists, you travel around the world photographing chaos, death, and destruction. It doesn't matter whether this is a dead child in Haiti, or a dead child somewhere in Africa, or Southeast Asia, or whatever. It's just the composition. That is a dangerous thing if we just see people in crisis as compositions. Jackson isn't the only voice in Amon's comprehensive photo essay style piece which illustrates the photojournalist's perspective with images of the work they do to counterbalance the concerns they raise. Today, Aman sits down with Tara to discuss what drew her to the thesis of this story and how she found a way to tell it. Welcome to the final episode of the sixth season of Pull Quotes. We're your hosts, Tara DeBoer, Silas LeBlanc, and Tim Cook. Thank you so much for being with us on Pull Quotes today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm doing good. Thank you. Of course. So I really enjoyed your story and I wanted to ask you, what drew you to this particular area of journalism for this year's Review of Journalism magazine? Basically, towards the end of 2020, when the BLM protest hypes died down, there was this discussion about people being desensitized to black and brown death because of the police brutality videos that were circulating in the media a lot during that time. So that conversation um, was definitely in the back of my mind. But getting to this story in particular, there was a photo essay done for the New York Times that I mentioned in my story called Stepping Over the Dead in a Migrant Boat. And it was a collection of images with boats full of migrants from Eritrea, Somalia, and Ethiopia all countries very close to me. 
And the narrative could have easily been, you know, highlighting the plight of migrants, but instead showed these images of survivors stepping over dead bodies, like the title was saying. You know, you saw images of men and women visibly in, you know, a state of panic and you know, one of the worst situations imaginable. And then these photos coupled with the headlines stepping over the dead and commentary from a journalist, a photojournalist, who described the photos as feeling as though you're not living in a civilized world. It just, the entire thing was very dehumanizing. And to me, the narrative was almost set up like, look at these uncivilized Africans doing whatever it takes to get to the West. So yeah, so the narrative that was coming through these photos, you know, be it intentionally or unintentionally, I didn't like, I was very dehumanizing. It didn't highlight that these were real individuals who were actually leaving a life behind by getting on these migrant boats that had a lot to lose by getting on these boats. They didn't expect that I am alive. And she said, all of your family being weird about you. How uh, do you come to uh, Italy? Where are you? Saying again and again. (laughs) She was asking if it was really you. Okay, I will, uh, now she will not sleep. (laughs) <laughs> she will tell them. <laughs> As possible, she and the images weren't doing what I assumed they intended to do. So it really wanted, inspired me to take a more critical look at shock value photojournalism. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like it really struck a nerve in you. And I think that's when the best stories are produced, when it sounds like it's it was quite personal for you and you felt like this needed to be told. You chose to center your story around three photojournalists, Andrew Jackson, Sebastian Hidalgo, and Daniela Zalkman. So I'm wondering how you selected these photographers as these big voices in your stories. I had the opportunity to interview a few journalists, but the three that you mentioned that were in my story, each kind of had a special approach to their work. So Daniela Zachman, she covered indigenous communities. Um, She has this ongoing project called Signs of Your Identity, where she takes portraits of residential school survivors, superimposes them with images of the sites of the residential schools that they went to, or just their past, and then coupled with a commentary about their time there. So Daniela's work really spoke to me because it doesn't shy away from the trauma that comes with coming from a residential school, but also it's very humanizing and it highlights these are real people with real experiences. I found Andrew Jackson on, I was watching a panel on photojournalism and he was one of the speakers on the panel. The images in the story, in my story that Andrew Jackson took are from a collection of photos called From a Small Island, which is also a photo essay, I guess, about migration. It's about Caribbean migration to the UK. The issue or the the, the kind of the, the story surrounding migration is always seen as, as a problematic thing. It's always seen as facts and figures and numbers. And what I wanted to, to do with this work was to look at it in terms of a human experience. It's a story. It's but a, unlike the New York Times story that I just life. mentioned, um, it highlights images you know, of where life. they came from. I was intrigued by what their lives could have been if they'd chosen a different path, but also what Jamaica would have been. And I was convinced that I needed to go to Jamaica to continue this work. It's a more, in my opinion, a more thoughtful approach to telling stories like that. And then Sebastian Hidalgo, he writes a lot about trauma-informed journalism. Um, he captures his community very heavily, and he a lot of violence in his community as well as school shootings. Um, but his approach is very thoughtful. He spends a lot of time in these communities, 
and he goes back to the communities when even after the photos are taken. And so that's why I kind of chose to highlight these three photographers. It sounds like they all are very intentional about the focus of their work. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, based on your conversations with each of them, what would you say drives these photographers in how they tell stories? I don't know if I could say, I mean, clearly they're all very passionate about photojournalism. I don't know if I could speak for them and say that what drives them, but I know that they all, I mean, two of them at least had moments um, in their career where they had to kind of reflect on a photo that was taken um, and ask themselves why they took that photo. I think a common theme in the three photographers that I interviewed was that they really centered care. Care was really important to them. They really gave themselves time to go to these communities and engage with the communities as best they could. Okay, so just to switch gears a little bit, I'm curious, based on your learning throughout this process of reporting, do publishers still pressure photojournalists to produce work that maybe doesn't adhere to their own ethical standards? Did you get any of that out of your discussions with these photojournalists? Well, there's no way to tell what each individual's ethical standards are. So that makes photojournalism, I think, a very interesting medium. I mean, depending on the company that they work for, a lot of things can vary. But what I, what I can say is that photojournalism is journalism at the end of the day. So there's always this pressure to get the story no matter what. And that can sometimes result in parachute journalism. People don't always... I guess, have time to produce the most thoughtful piece in the world. But the three um, photojournalists that I interviewed all, I believe, are independent photojournalists. So I don't think that they run into that problem. But I think early on in their career, definitely, for sure. Did you speak to them about how being an independent photojournalist allows them to be more selective in what photos they take and stories they tell? My thinking is that when you have an editor, they're Mm -hmm. typically guiding you on what they want and will tell you what kinds of photos they might want. But if you're independent, I'm wondering, oh, would you be able to align your photos with your ethics? Yeah, no, definitely for sure. Um, Daniela Zachman, before she started the Signs of Your Identity project, she initially took photos of residential school survivors. Um, She thought it was a public health crisis. It was about the AIDS um, and HIV epidemic in indigenous communities in Canada. And so she initially took those images. And when she sat with those images, she realized these photos are photos that people have already seen. They're not really telling a story that's deeper than just a public health public health crisis. And I realized that a lot of the photos that I'd taken, while they were a very truthful, accurate depiction of the reality of that family, of that community, of a lot of different Native communities, they, on their own, did not tell the whole story. They perpetuated a narrative that was stigmatizing, and it wasn't the part of that narrative that I wanted to share. And so I spent about two weeks interviewing 45. Yeah, no, I guess like in those situations, they saw the work they did and then they said, this doesn't align with my ethics. And so they had the freedom to change what their approach to that story was going to be. That brings me to shock value, which you touch on in your story. Mm -hmm. So you touch on how there is no evidence to suggest that shock value photos actually Mm -hmm. lead to any political change. And I would say there is competing evidence that shows that shock value does lead to shifts in public perceptions. So I think it's like a double-sided argument. Are you able Mm -hmm. to speak to this at all and kind of, and what your thoughts are on shock value photos based on your reporting? Sure. 
I mean, well, I want to firstly highlight that I don't believe that there is 100% no need for shock value photography. Sometimes, you know, given the reality of a situation, it might just be necessary. What I was really trying to highlight in this story is that there's disparity when it comes to which communities are photographed and published in that way. In terms of, you know, leading to change, one of the photographers I interviewed, Daniela Zachman, noted that there's a difference between the impact maybe photos from the Vietnam War back in the day had on the population. Then from now, like when we consume violent images of conflict on a daily basis. And then in terms of leading to political change, yes, I guess there is two sides to that argument. I did reference this in my story, the Alan Kurdi photographs of the young Syrian boy that was washed mm -hmm. on the show. That image, you know, caused public outcry. As soon as I saw that photo, I recognized that it was going to become one of those photos that changes the course of history. And I still believe that. So as a journalist, as painful as it is to invade that private moment with his family, our obligation is to the greater good. And the greater good is that people understand and recognize the gravity of what's happening. And to this point, it's but been very hard. In reading studies, apparently that image, you know, caused public outcry for, you know, a week or two, but then kind of just fell away and the new news cycle came along. And there was just no link to that photograph and like evidence of political change directly, anyways. You know, mm -hmm. outcry is very real, but there's just no evidence to suggest that you need images like that these days, at least, that would lead to any tangible change. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like it's very nuanced, I'm sure, yeah. for whatever issue it is and what the photo looks like. You referenced Black Lives Matter movement in your yeah. first answer. Even that issue alone with the video that was released, you could probably speak to many sides of the reaction to that, right? And the impact that it had. So it sounds like it's very yeah. nuanced. Yeah. And I want to add that there's no evidence to suggest that Shock Valley photos lead to any political change. But there's no, also no evidence to suggest that they don't. It's just there's no correlation. Like there's no visible correlation. Iman, did you face any challenges while reporting on this story? And how did you address those? Choosing images that I wanted to highlight was a big one. I interviewed a lot of photojournalists, but a lot of them just kind of said, you know, I go out, I take my photos and I give them to my editor and I come home. Not, there was no special approach. So finding the photojournalists that were doing different work were a challenge for this story. You know, getting the rights to photographs was also a challenge for this story. Yeah, I'm curious about getting the rights to photos. So throughout the mm -hmm. story, you share photos which mm -hmm. reflect how the work that these photojournalists do is intentionally ethical. So I'm curious mm -hmm. how you selected those photos. I found Danielle Zachman through her Signs of Your Identity project. So I knew like immediately, I was like, oh, I love these photos. I want these photos to be in the story. With Sebastian Hidalgo, a lot of his approach was about taking photos from his hometown. The neighborhood itself taught me how to love, how to mourn, how to live life. Pilsen is what Sebastian Hidalgo is talking about. He says it made him who he is. On any given day, you'll find him simply documenting life here. And so he allowed me to choose any of his photos. And so I decided to choose photos from his Midwest project, which is stories about communities in his hometown. And then 
with Andrew Jackson, there was a few photos that I wanted to select from him. Um, one was about the housing crisis in Birmingham. It talks about displacement and housing, but in a very thoughtful way. But instead, we got images from his project from a small island, which I'm very happy about because, again, it's like an alternative story about migration in a way that, in my opinion, is... I don't want to use the word thoughtful, but more thoughtful. <laughs> That's the reason I chose those three images, but also aesthetically, they're all very beautiful. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think they definitely add a lot to your story to have them included. And I would say thoughtful is the right word. So it makes sense. So it keeps coming out thoughtful, intentional, with care. I think those are the big themes of your story and the work they do. So lastly, I want to ask you, what do you hope people get from reading this story and seeing these images? So I hope that people can, you know, see amazing photojournalism and explore more of the work done by the photojournalists I highlighted in my story. But I also hope that people can think more critically about the photos that they consume. And the photographers who take graphic images, I hope that they can sit with the photographs that they took and ask themselves, what does this add to the conversation and how will this affect the individual in the photo? Yeah, definitely. And I think you did an excellent job. It definitely has impacted how I consume visual journalism. I know it will affect other people and how they do. And also for the photojournalist reading, I think it's a great story for them. So thank you so much for the work you did on this. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this season of Pull Quotes. Over the last six episodes, we've explored a wide range of issues that we as journalists are grappling with, and we hope you've enjoyed learning as much as we have. Thank you to all of our guests who appeared on the show and gave extremely interesting insights into their reporting. We hope you pick up a copy of the Review of Journalism or check back on our website to read their full stories, as well as some other amazing pieces that we did not get to cover. Big thanks to our producer, Angela Glover, executive producer, Sonia Fatah, and our fact checker, Stephanie Davoli. For one final time, we're your hosts, Tara DeBoer, Silas LeBlanc, and Tim Cook. <laughs>